It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. I'm Patty Roberts with St. Mary's University School of Law, and today's guest is Laura Frederick. She's a commercial contracts attorney and also founder and president of the How to Contract training platform. She also manages her own law firm, Laura Frederick Law. I learned recently a fellow Texan. She has her law firm in Austin, Texas. She's an ex-Tesla and ex-Big Law technology transaction attorney with 25 plus years of experience. Welcome, Ms. Frederick. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have you because you have really um, developed a niche that was um, apparently very much needed by practicing attorneys. And we'll talk about how that might fit in with law schools and, and, uh, and law students. But first, I want to just ask you, in your law firm, um, you were sitting around and you decided what? How did you embark on this how to contract training platform? Well, there's a couple reasons I took this path. First, it was something I always wanted. Uh, From being a young associate in law firms, I always dreamed of having someplace to to give me the answers that I needed. You know, how do I negotiate this license provision? Yes, I understand IP law. I learned about that. Yes, I learned about contracts. But what am I supposed to say? How do I change? Do I change this word? What if the other side changes it? Do I have to change it back or is it okay? So there's those kinds of very granular insights that I really couldn't find in any of the training and and books out there. So there was that was kind of a lifelong a career long uh, search for something that would give me those kinds of answers. And then I came to a point with my own law firm that I was doing well and it was running smoothly. I was making the you know good money and I thought this is the opportunity, this is the time that I can now start giving back. Uh, it's you get to this point in your career and you have so much knowledge and so much training inside you, the things that you know, and you just want to do a brain dump to the world and say, here, take all this knowledge. I don't want to just take it off with me into retirement and have it go to waste. So it started by me just posting a daily tip on LinkedIn. And then as soon as I started doing that, I saw the need and people just were asking for more. They wanted them in a a print format or a PDF. So I published a book and then that sold like crazy. And it really showed me that people were as hungry as I was for finding these kinds of practical answers. So I'm familiar with your LinkedIn contract tip of the day. That's actually how I first learned about you and your work. Uh, Can you Tell us um, how you come up with those and how you create them. And then also um, give us an example of one. Sure. So the, I started these with, with sort of my what I want to tell 
the counterparties against whom I'm negotiating. You know, so I'll be negotiating against somebody and they don't know something that I think they should know. So I had some maybe 10 to 15 of these kind of nits that I used to drive me crazy. So I started writing to them about it. And then I started thinking about what if I was talking to, let's say, a third year lawyer and what's the difference in knowledge between of how to draft and negotiate contracts that I have compared to a third year lawyer? So I've learned a lot of stuff over the years. And so that's what I'm trying to capture in my daily tips is I take one piece of advice and I explain it in a very plain English, easily readable by anybody um, and just post that. And so it's really my insight into it. And what I love is the conversations and start. I have a lot of people who love to talk about that issue. We debate, we have discussions. It's a very friendly, supportive way to ask questions. Um, so yeah, so that's been the, uh, the main way they've developed. It's really just my, what I know, and I've been working to capture what I know all along. I love that you say that they're zero fluff to the point lessons. Um, and it sounds like you really ignite some uh, generous debate and discussion afterwards. Um, I, I think that people listening might be intrigued by that, this idea and excited about the kind of response you've had on LinkedIn. How much time do you spend every day? Because I, I know LinkedIn can sort of suck you in and... Uh, <laughs> And never let you go, but um, but it is a hugely useful platform. And so, how do you balance that with practicing law? Yeah. So I started by with well, I keep in mind I've been on this path to create more content and training as what's become most of my job now. So I look at the time on LinkedIn as an investment in that, that I want to keep creating content. It's not like the billable hour where it's once one billable hour I do and it's gone and never to be seen again. Now I create tips and I'm collecting these tips and then I create workbooks and then I collect those tips and I create training. So they're really, I consider them the bricks that are with which I'm building this huge training building. Um, and so I see it as an investment. But to answer the specific question, I usually spend about an hour to an hour and a half in the morning. I get my coffee, I sit down, think about, I usually have, I have a, an idea collection um, process. I have a, a free Hootsuite account. And whenever I'm working and have an idea like, oh, that's something that avatar person that I think of, the third year lawyer or somebody who used to do litigation and is moving over to transactional, this is something they might not know. And so I capture that idea. And then if I don't have a, an idea any particular morning, I usually will find one of those and expand on that. So you've put these into a book and um, tell me about the reception of the book. If I were thinking about buying it, um, why should I buy it and, and how would it help me? Yeah, the book, it's I, I, like a lot of the, the training I'm giving, there's such a, a thirst and need for it. And I'm, I saw that with the sales. So people, you know, who wants to read a book about contracts for fun? But I create it 
with I'm just going to say, not me. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not me. And even contract lawyers generally don't want to read these things. But the I use a very conversational style when I'm talking about things. I'm not, and you can hear it in how I speak. I'm not a formal person. I say cool and amazing and things like that because that's who I am. And I used to feel embarrassed by that, but then I realized that's actually a great communication tool because it makes what I write and what I say more accessible. Um, so each tip in the book is on one page. So you can flip through what my mother, my 83-year-old mother calls a bathroom book, where you can just flip through at any moment, pick a page, and you're good, and you'll learn something. And so I get a lot of people who use it either to get familiar with the first time or to learn it um, to refresh their memory about how things work or get an insight that they hadn't thought about. And so the, the book that's published now has 91 tips um, and I'm planning on coming out with one this fall that'll have about 300 tips and include all my yeah. cartoons because I've got, I, don't, I didn't mention it before, I publish, I create a cartoon for each tip. And so the book this fall will have all those cartoons as well. That's exciting that it'll be a second edition with cartoons. <laughs> exactly. Great. Law does not have enough cartoons. No, <laughs> we have a, a professor here, um, Colin Marks, who has done, along with a co-author, um, a secured transactions coloring book. So oh, maybe there that. should be a coloring book in your future. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Actually, I've had that idea and somebody also wanted me to create a board game based oh, on contracts, yeah. which I could totally see, but I'm trying to stay focused and not, I'd love to go off into tangents and, you know, create merchandise and do all these kind of things. That sounds really fun, but I'm trying to not get too distracted by my, by these other ideas I have. Absolutely. So um, you had the book, which is how to contract, correct? Yep by Laura Frederick. And so that'll be the, that's the first edition. People can sign up for the tip of the day on LinkedIn. Um, tell me about the audience for your LinkedIn tips of the day. It's ranges. It's, it's amazing how different uh, the people are who read my tips and comment and like. So I have a lot of law students uh, that are using it as a way to kind of get a jump start on how contracts work in the real world. When you're working with companies, when you're working in a law firm, not kind of the case law based concepts that you might learn in law school or some fundamentals that you learn in a transactional transactions course, but really, okay, your client calls up and says this, what do you say back? And so that's a lot of the, the law students use it for that, as well as new lawyers. Uh, but I also have a, a ton of business people, contract professionals, sales, procurement, people who work with con commercial contracts every day, and they use it as a way to augment their learning and figure, get, see how people are discussing the issue. And then the surprise to me is that most of my people who engage on LinkedIn and who are my members and attended a conference I had earlier this year are six years plus of practice experience because what I found is they, they really appreciate hearing from someone else uh, how the others do the things that they do. So 
a lot of us are kind of figure stuff out as we go. And so it's great to have someone who's saying, well, I do it this way, because then you can compare it to what you do. Oh, maybe I should tweak it a little bit and do it that way too. Or no, I feel really good about the way I do it. I, you know, now that I've considered this other way, I feel good that I'm doing it the way I want. Well, you mentioned the conference, which I was certainly going to ask you about, but so you had the book book, and then the LinkedIn uh, tip of the day, and then you held an inaugural conference. So please tell us about that and wh what the programming was like and who attended and, and if you plan more. Yeah, it's so it was the first annual uh, How to Contract conference. It was in January. It was virtual. And it really started as a plan to kind of get all my friends together to come to Austin and eat barbecue and drink margaritas and geek out on contracts. And so that was the original idea. And I thought, oh, well, we should make it open to more people, not just kind of the 20 people that I wanted to invite, but let's make it open. And then it turned into, okay, let's have a conference. And it just kind of ballooned from there. So it, it will be the first of an annual, so I'm already starting to plan the next one that's coming in January uh, of 2023, and it, we had almost 400 people attend, uh, so it was a huge wow. success. Yeah. yeah, 360 or so paid, and then, of course, we had some sponsors and other friends, uh, so it was an amazing experience to go through. It was way harder than I ever expected it would be. But uh, the I, I used my um, approach to training in the conference. So the speakers didn't come up with their own topics. I gave them each a provision or a concept. And so we had one speaker speaking about indemnities and one speaking about definitions and one speaking about confidentiality provisions. So it was very, very contract-centric, provision-centric, and focused in on helping people learn the difference between you know, when you use this word and when you use that word in a provision. It was 100% practical-based, even though we had a couple professors as, as speakers, the focus was very much on how these things work in the real world and what we do. And you indicated there were a, a significant percentage of people from the international community. Tell us more yes. about that. So about 25% of the people who attended came from outside the US. There's from some countries where you'd expect Canada's legal systems very similar. Our contracts are very similar, England as well, but also a lot from countries that maybe don't have a similar legal system. And I was surprised by that. And I've been surprised this whole time I've been doing training by how much interest there is around the world in learning practical contract skills. And what it really taught me was how even though we come from very different legal systems, you know, there's a collective interest in drafting contracts and uh, doing it effectively and protecting our clients. And there's a, an approach there that isn't limited to just one country, even though as a US lawyer, I just do, I only know US laws, but there's so much commonality with lawyers and professionals outside the US. Yeah, do you think that um, 
the majority of people are trying to learn those contract skills, as you indicated, regardless of jurisdiction, the law doesn't matter. It's, you know, when should I have this provision? When should I have that? Or do you think that many of those um, people involved internationally are trying to learn more about how the U.S. contracts? Yeah, I believe it's the former. I think these are people, there are some who do contracts with the U.S., but based on the discussions, a lot of the people don't. And so they're really not looking to learn U.S. laws. They they find it interesting when we talk about, for example, we were talking about trade secrets and how in the U.S. we've got so many different, we got the 50 different versions. I know we have a uniform version, but officially 50 different implementations of that, plus the federal, it's, it's so confusing. And so in India, I learned there's just one, but there are, are all the individual um, government units where they may, the judges may handle things differently. And so it was really interesting to hear the discussion. And I think my focus is more not on what exactly is a trade secret. It is, okay, how do you deal with that? If you're working with a company and you've got trade secrets, regardless of the specific definition and whether this piece of information is one or not, how do you advise your clients? How does it impact how you draft confidentiality provisions? How does it impact how you do NDAs? And a lot of that is pretty uniform because the concept of trade secrets is common. If you were litigating, the specific law would matter. But for a lot of the corporate business practices that commercial lawyers advise on, it doesn't matter where you're from. It's a lot of the same things about being, you know, having good storage and management techniques, making sure your clients and your internal uh, employees understand how to protect trade secrets, understanding when you would just get an NDA, when you don't. Those kinds of things don't rely on the specific wording of the trade secret statute that you're looking at. And I think that's where that's what the international audience is really interested in is those practices as opposed to what the case law says about this element of a trade secret and when something meets it or not. So what would you say to the experienced attorney, um, maybe as experienced as you, but who is in big law and is saying, you know, we have this, um, you know, Dropbox equivalent full of every contract for the last hundred years. Like we don't need to have our associates um, learning tips of the day and all that. They just need to plug and play with the agreements that we already have. Um, I don't agree with that point of view, but tell <laughs> us why we shouldn't agree with that point of view. Yeah, I think the reason is because the, you know, lawyers love to say it depends. And the reason is because it does. It really does depend how you approach, let's use a confidentiality provision. You could have the best template in the world, the perfect one developed by a group of very knowledgeable lawyers, and they all agree this is the perfect definition of confidential information. Well, that's great, but it doesn't work for the restaurant protecting their secret recipe in the same way it works for the company with their source code. And so the law applies to both of those, but in practice, when we're negotiating those contracts, we're going to write things differently. And so helping your associates, helping your business teams even understand how it works, 
on what it depends and when it matters is really key because we can't fix everything. It's just not reality. And that's a lot of what I talk about is the reality of our jobs. So if you have a $10,000 contract or you're buying office equipment, you don't really care that much about the confidentiality provision. And most of us, you know, if I'm reviewing a contract like that, I, you know, I'll scan it, but I'm not going to worry about it. But if I'm doing the $100 million IP development contract, well, I'm going to spend a ton of time on that. And so you want to make sure your associates and your and your lawyers understand when they need to make those changes and when they don't, because we're doing those judgment calls, whether you teach us or not. And so better that you help us learn how to make those decisions than just pull a template off the box or out of the file. So that makes me think a couple of things. First of all, that shows I think quite well the difference between how artificial intelligence could contribute to this and how instead we need the human lawyer legal professionals judgment calls in a lot of these things. But it's almost like you're teaching them how to spot the issues. Um, what is it that they have to think about? What is it that they have to give attention to? And then what are the choices? Um, I imagine that what is important and what the issues are is changing a great deal in contracting. I think of a few areas, you know, whether it's digital assets or it's ransomware or it's pandemic um, issues. And so um, how much are you incorporating those kinds of things into your how to contract um, trainings? So my, I made the decision early on to focus on the fundamentals, the things that never really change. So how you draft and negotiate an indemnity provision. Again, you might have individual case law here and there that affect things in particular jurisdictions, but generally the approaches that we used 20 years ago, we're still using to negotiate. I, so if I go back to my checklist that I had 20 years ago as an associate, I'm still using the same thing today. And because the core concepts haven't changed, same with assignment or uh, IP licensing, those core concepts, generally there are tweaks again on the edges, but not the core concepts. Things like the pandemic or AI or, you know, cryptocurrency or, or all these current issues of the day definitely have a place, but it's for most of us, the, the, the bulk of lawyers out there doing commercial contracts, those are tangential issues. Those don't come up day to day. Day to day, we get a contract, a master supply agreement, we got to buy widgets. Those are the contracts that come across our desk every day. The occasional, my CEO wants to do an NFT, you know, that's a whole different kind of lawyering when you're having to just know, oh, there's such a thing as NFTs, I better go figure it out, compared to making sure that you understand everything you need to know about a licensing provision and how you negotiate it so that the product that you're building has the proper rights. And I think we, as a legal profession, we have so much focus on these kind of cool current issues and not that those are all cool, but like COVID, if you look at the CLEs and the training between COVID, cryptocurrency, NFTs, AI, that's 50% of the CLEs out there. And that's not in my view, what lawyers need. We need 
How do you do a licensing provision? How do you negotiate an NDA? How do you, you know, approach these complex contracting issues and learn how POs and quotes and proposals work together and how you create a statement of work? Those core concepts and skills, that's my big focus. And that's because that's what I always looked for. I wasn't looking for the kind of issues of the day, but more the, the fundamentals. And um, in teaching those fundamentals, you've mentioned a few times in your how to contracting um, approach, negotiating, negotiating a contract, negotiating a provision. Um, do you spend time in your trainings on that? Are there tips of the day related to the negotiation itself? Yeah, that's actually I have more tips on negotiation than anything else, because that's really the core of what we do. Sure, we're drafting, but as a commercial lawyer, whether you're in-house or in a law firm, 50% of your time is negotiating, whether by email or in person. And so learning how to approach those things is critical. And I, my focus is more, again, on the practical side of it. So I love things, books like Never Split the Difference, you know, fantastic information, not totally relevant to my work. There's a lot of things that he teaches that are great in theory, but when you're working day to day and you've got 20 contracts to do today, you split the difference all day long because at the end of the day, you're trying, speed is what matters, not getting every last thing on your deal. Of course, if you're doing the big bet the company deal, you know, you might not take that route. But for most of what we do, we split the difference all the time. And so what I talk about is the practical reality of how we negotiate as commercial lawyers, how we approach it, how you deal with that unreasonable counterparty, how you deal with the it's non-negotiable, I have no bargaining power, stalled negotiations, all those kind of things, the situations that lawyers face every day. That's what I love to talk about and specifically give step-by-step uh, -step instructions. Okay, do this. So if you have a stalled in, in you know, negotiation and neither side's moving, you know, one approach, put it off. Don't just do it at the end. Whatever issue you can't agree on, just put a pin in it and save it for the end and then trade horse trade, whatever's left. Or another ish approach is here, create a chart. It'll do this, this, and this, and then walk. Here's the technique you can use to talk to your counterparty about it. Here's how you have that conversation. You go by here, you copy this. And it really, my goal is that whatever I'm training you on, you'll be able to apply today in your job. And that's my, that's always my frame of reference. I don't wanna teach background law unless I need to for them to understand how to do something. But my focus is always on how do you do something. Will you give us one tip for our listeners? Just one tip that is one of the ones that's high on your list that people could use today. I would say the my number one most important tip that I learned as a practicing lawyer that is the most important thing lawyers can do in contracts, which is to say everything once. Make sure your contracts do not repeat concepts. The most one of the common ways I see this, for example, is the concept of shipping terms. 
you know, we have an INCO term, which represents a particular way that risk flows, whether it's, you know, where the risk of loss passes. And then in the next sentence, they'll have a, a, something that conflicts with the INCO term they selected. That's a, a, an example of not saying things once and saying things two different ways that conflict and that leave us with a big mess. So as a lawyer, I always felt like that was the number one thing I had to do was make sure my contracts don't repeat things different ways. That's an excellent suggestion. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, Okay, well, at the end of each episode, I ask our guests um, what your predictions are for the evolution of legal education in the coming decade. And um, I know you're not in legal education, but you certainly shared with us that law students are interested in what you have to say and that um, we as legal educators could benefit from utilizing some of the approach and the suggestions that you have in your how to contracting training. Um, but also, as well as predicting what is likely to happen in legal education in the coming decade, um, what should happen in the coming decade that you fear may not? Let's see. So what's likely to happen is I think we'll continue to see a push towards practical training that we're, I, we definitely have seen that trend in law schools over the last 10 years, 15 years. When I was in law school, the, the practical training was all focused on litigation. I, it's been great to see schools really embrace transactional training. So I think that will continue to happen. I think they'll continue to be more focus on that training and maybe replacing some of the what I'll call the esoteric classes that we take as third year law students. I took civil rights. I took a bunch of things, insurance law, very interesting things. But what would have been better for me would have been to spend that third year learning practical uh, training about whether litigation or transactional work. So I, I think that will continue to happen. And then what I'm worried won't happen is my personal belief is that law school should come down to two years. And I would love to see an apprentice program, a training program like other countries have that would give law students the opportunity to transition before they start hanging out their shingle, showing up to work at a company, showing up at a law firm. With a law firm, I don't worry as much because they're going to get supervised and trained. But for law students coming out of law school and you know, opening their own law firm the next day or uh, working in a corporation, often they are not getting that kind of training. And so I think law schools have to step up more and really fill that gap because we used to be able to reply, rely on the law firms to provide them practical training. So it was okay that law schools didn't do that. That's not a reality anymore. So my fear is that law schools don't step up and kind of take ownership of getting their law students to that level that they're ready and able and have the skills to practice law in that way. 
Well, thank you. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I've often thought we should have something like an apprenticeship or a residency, more like medical school. Um, I'm not sure that those kinds of things are likely to happen in the next decade, but I agree with you. It would be wonderful <laughs> if they did. Yeah. Uh, and then people would leave with the kinds of skills that you're providing to the attorneys three years, six years out. Um, so thank you very much for being a guest. And uh, if you want to share how people can join your group, that would be really helpful. Yeah, that's uh, the best way to find out more is either follow me on LinkedIn or go to howtocontract.com. And you can find out information about our memberships where we provide a lot of training uh, content and checklists and uh, negotiation scripts and lots of practical information or our courses uh, where you can find out more or our events like the conference. So we'll have lots of that coming up this year. So if you want to find out more, head over to howtocontract.com. Thanks so much. My guest is Laura Frederick and follow her to learn her tips of the day on LinkedIn. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.